Well, welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is uh, September 22nd, 2015. This is broadcast number 88. And today in studio, we again have our monthly feature of the Faith and Practice segment. This is episode number 16, and I was just thinking this morning, it's 16 of these we've done uh, since the beginning, and um, uh, the feedback we've received has been very, very good. So we thank the listeners for all the questions that they've sent in. So as usual, Dr. Piper is in uh, in studio this morning to um, answer the questions of the listeners. Some of them, most of them, all of them are very, very outstanding. So we look forward to um, interacting with those questions in just a minute. So Dr. Piper, it's great to have you on the program. And um, right. And, and, and what we're going to do, um, Dr. Pipe is going to lead us in prayer, something that we've been thinking about uh, and something we ought to be doing uh, before we do these things. So, Dr. Pipe. Our Father in heaven, we bless your holy name and thank you that you're our God and our Redeemer. We thank you for your spirit who indwells us and is our teacher. We ask now, Lord, as we go through these questions, that you will give me wisdom inside into the scriptures make the uh, answers profitable for uh, your people this day. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. All right, well, like, I guess we'll just start at the beginning. We, haven't, we didn't really chat, I think, off-air about how we were going to approach this, so um, we're going to begin with um, question number one. It's actually a two-part question. comes from Mark. Didn't we do the first one last time and, and say the second one? I don't know. I have no idea. All right. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> all right, we're going to do, uh, we're just going to take them in order, I guess, unless um, there's something we need to skip, but I think... Um, no, this order's fine. Order's good, and, and there's no promise, of course, that we're going to get through all of them, because we have quite a few here in front of us. So Mark writes in, two questions, really, uh, somewhat lengthy, but here they go. The first question is, what practical steps can sessions of, ch- of a church that is obedient to God and his word take to protect itself civilly against at least the initial waves of attacks by the left? and homosexuals under the alleged rights recently afforded them by the Supreme Court of the United States. Surely we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but I imagine that just as we might put sandbags around our facility to provide some protection against floodwaters, some policies or practices could be made or strengthened to buffer against attacks without closing off a welcome and open door to visitors to come and sit under God's, God's means of grace and worship. Thank you, Mark. Good question. I was reading this morning in 2 Samuel David went to battle and almost was defeated by a giant because he was old. And I was meditating the fact that although God gave him great grace to beat Goliath, that God does use means as well. And so your illustration of sandbags is very appropriate. We must do all things by prayer, but we do need to uh, do as our Savior tells us and have uh, the subtlety uh, of serpents as we deal with the serpent himself. So there are things uh, that the church can and should do, and we've been recommending, uh, for example, to our own students and graduates and others with whom we have contact uh, to have your session uh, adopt a very strenuous uh, use of building policy as well as marriage policy. Now, we needed this anyway with respect to uh, who could be married in the church building. But if you've not done it as a pastor and at sessions, it needs to be done now. And I think the wisest thing to do is to say that uh, at least one of the marriage partners 
uh, needs to be a member of your church. And that way the session knows them, knows the person they're courting and are getting ready to, um, to marry. Session has already set out a plan for, that should include a plan of premarital counseling. It should include uh, provisions that the final approval must be given to the session about marriage anyway. So those are things that can be done. The same with just don't rent your facilities. Uh, let uh, people in the church use them. Uh, as they need to be used, but we're going to be forced into uh, these types of uh, practices. And so, yes, I think that we need written policy statements. I've not seen it yet, but I understand that the church where we attend, Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, has just put together a very comprehensive uh, policy manual, and they've also dealt with things like uh, child abuse and such. And so I'm sure it'll be a good model for others as well, and you can... uh, contact them at Woodruff Road PCA here in Greenville and probably get a copy of that as well. So, yes, we want people to come and sit under the gospel. We don't close our doors uh, to anybody in terms of who may attend worship, but we must be very careful with respect to marriage, respect to whom the church hires. Mm. If the church does hire somebody, again, you need to have hiring policies that would be consistent with um, our standards of biblical morality, have all that written down. Uh, and the, the more stuff is in a, in a policy manual, the better off the church is. And if our hearers have such manuals, we'd be glad to serve as a clearinghouse to make those available to other congregations as well. Very good. Yeah, it's a very important subject and one that we've actually discussed in classes uh, here at the seminary. But in Mark has a follow-up question. Um, how should we best pray for our pastors and other officers in our churches, presbyteries, classes, and our synods, GAs at this time concerning the judicially invented right to homosexual quote-unquote marriage and apparently weak or absent language in the majority opinion concerning religious freedoms of persons, cler- uh, churches, and clergy? Well, I hope that many of our either live listeners or those that will listen to the podcast later, joined us in the day of prayer and fasting uh, where we repented of uh, the sins of our country, not just this this particular sin, but all the other sexual sins and uh, abortion and all of these things are all part of a whole. Uh, We need to repent of these things, and then we need to plead with God uh, on the one hand for uh, overturning uh, these things, and on the other hand, to pray for revival and reformation. It's my opinion that uh, it's weak churches that have set the uh, low standards for a weakening uh, culture. And then we also need to pray, and uh, those in leadership need to prepare congregations for persecution. It surely seems that things are moving that direction. I've mentioned this one time recently on one of the faith and practice uh, programs. Uh, that we should be preparing for uh, the reality of persecution and be willing then continue to preach the Word of God about life, about marriage, about sexuality, and not just about homosexuality, but about adultery, fornication, uh, pornography. There needs, from what I'm reading, there needs to be a great deal of repentance in our churches about pornography. Mm. Some people say 50% of pastors are involved in uh, internet 
pornography. It's mm. a question that we ask our students. We ask it every man that comes to Presbytery to be examined. The question I've asked friends to ask me, we must be held accountable. So, but we plead with God to have mercy on us at times like this, and we believe in the power of prayer. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you for the questions. They're very good and, and, and relevant, of course, to the current issues that we're facing uh, both as a country and as a church um, here, in, um, here in the United States specifically. Now, Dennis writes in a short question, which I really appreciate. <laughs> it just makes it easier for me to read them. But he says, is it a sin to sing a man-made hymns or hymn in a worship service? Thank you, Dennis. The answer to that question depends upon a, a larger issue and even a larger issue. The largest issue is what we call the regular principle of worship. And we believe that. It's taught in Scripture. It's spelled out clearly in the Westminster Standards and in the three forms of unity that the church may and must do in worship only those things that God reveals to us in his word that we are to do. So it's a sin to do anything in worship that is not revealed to us in Scripture. Then the next question will be, does the Bible reveal that we are to sing psalms only, or does the Bible reveal that we should sing uh, biblically accurate hymns as well as psalms? So depending on how one answers that question, those that believe in what we call exclusive psalmody will say it's a sin to sing a man humanly composed him in a worship service. I trust that most of them will say that this disagreement has to do with a fallibility of human knowledge, which we all have, and would uh, not be condemnatory in the way they hold to their standards. Those who sing hymns must believe they have a biblical warrant to sing hymns. It's not enough to say, well, I don't find uh, it, it forbidden. No. Uh, the regular principle is there must be a biblical warrant. So I believe that we have, that God teaches us in his word that we are to sing uh, hymns, particularly the hymns that will focus on the fullness and completion of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, uh, in the unfolding of redemption where we are now in the progressive history of uh, redemption and salvation. So, for me, it's a sin not to sing hymns. I used to say, because I love singing psalms, that I could serve as a pastor or minister in a church that sang psalms exclusively. But the more I've dealt with the issue in Scripture on this, I realize that would be wrong for me. Mm. Uh, because I am completely convinced that the Bible reveals that I am to sing hymns. Now, here at the seminary, we call ourselves inclusive psalmist. And I teach the worship course and we really emphasize uh, using the Psalms um, a great deal. In my own practices, when I'm preparing worship services, I like to sing at least 50% Psalms between the two services, if not more. And so, but I encourage either side to continue to study the Scriptures, to respect one another as, as those who hold the regular principle of worship, and continue to pray that God would fulfill his promises and give us a greater unity of thinking on this issue. 
Yeah, good question, and one that um, if you follow social media, you see this discussion um, quite often as it centers around how we're to approach God and worship. I was just brainstorming, Dr. Pipe, and this is not, not written down anywhere. Um, but I, I almost wonder if it wouldn't be helpful for the general public if we somehow could make our Reformed worship class that you teach available, not just to students, but to the general public, some kind of arrangement through iTunes University or some other process, because um, it covers this yeah. detail, this in detail, and as well as a lot of other issues. Well, I've mentioned to you and Martin, there's a couple of courses that I would like to make available, and that's that course and the Introduction to Reformed Theology. So uh, working on that, I have no problem, though, releasing that course to anybody that, I think what we say is for, for $60, we'll give an MP3 of, of a right. course to somebody yep. anyway. So it's, right. it is available. Yeah, so we'll so look to, for that in the future as we're trying to piece all those and things together. And then on Sermon Audio, I do have a, a, a lecture uh, on why we sing hymns. Yeah, that's a great resource. And, and for those who do not know, um, we are on Sermon Audios. Nearly everything the faculty uh, does, either whether within the seminary community or elsewhere, when they fill pulpits across the country, uh, the, those sermons are generally released and, and on our Sermon Audio site. So take advantage of that. You can just search for it. It's just search for GPTS, and it'll pop right up. And there's hundreds of resources there, including this podcast as well. All right, well, moving on, question three. We're, we're going quickly. This is good. Um, question three, uh, Virginia writes in, and she asks, what are the differences between the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 3, and the Canons of Dort, article 17, about children's death in infancy? What is your opinion about this issue and its consequences? Virginia is one of our most faithful listeners, and yeah. I appreciate her questions. She's a good friend. Her father is the one with Owen Coleman that actually uh, started the Puritan Project in Brazil that's having its, I think, its 25th anniversary this summer. It's a good question, Virginia. There's not any differences, in my opinion, between the two. For our hearers, Westminster Confession 10.3 says that um, elect infants and those who uh, are severely retarded, to paraphrase, uh, are saved. Uh, Canons of Dort, Article 17, says that covenant children who die in infancy are saved. Well, I think they're saying the same thing because most of us believe that uh, a covenant child that dies in infancy is elect. Now, the canons give a very useful argument, and that is um, with respect to the um, passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that uh, because Paul says they are holy. So they're set aside to Christ in covenant. They die in infancy. Uh, many use the David's confession that he fasted for the life of his child to be spared. When the child died, he uh, got up and quit his fast. He said that perhaps God had been willing to spare the child, but now the child had died. Um, David said, uh, you know, I I can't bring him back, but I'll go to him. Now, mm. he could simply be saying, well, I'm going to die as well, but that's not a lot of solace. He no. was very comforted right. uh, at the point. And so those two reasons, uh, I believe the Bible teaches what canons say, and I believe that's consistent with the Westminster standards. Now, some will probably want to be a bit more conservative with that uh, and say, well, if they are elect. But that's where you get the practical consequences. What do you tell parents? 
I'm very comfortable telling parents who lose a child, either as a miscarriage, lose a child in the womb, or a child dies in infancy, that uh, if, the, if, if they're walking with the Lord, that child uh, is with Christ in glory. So pastorally, it has a, a very important. Now, in the 19th century, the great majority, at least of American uh, Reformed Presbyterians, taught that all children who died in infancy were elect. Mm. And their reasoning was that because they were guilty of Adam's first sin, but not of any actual transgressions, that uh, uh, God in his uh, mercy would not, or justice, would not condemn them. But I think they're going too far in their reasoning at that point to dictate to the justice of God. So the best position, as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, covenant children and faithful co- – we're not talking now about the person baptized in a uh, apostate church. Right. But those in faithful homes, one faithful parent um, – that that child is with the Lord? Yeah, good question, and one that, uh, as Dr. Pipe has already indicated, is, is, is wrought with significant pastoral issues um, without, without question. Our next question comes in. It came from, in from Twitter this in, in probably a couple months ago, at, and we just had never got to it, or I had not followed up with the uh, professor here at the seminary to get a good answer. Um, but it was a direct to Dr. Benshaw in a conference that he had when he was speaking, he made reference to the fact that there are now books better than Edersheim's Old Testament history. And he, at the, the, the writer asks, what would those be? Well, this morning I uh, was able to uh, sit down with Dr. Shaw briefly, and, and, and he, it just rolled out of his mouth because, well, that's Dr. Shaw. He knows this, this material very well. And he gave two recommendations that he thinks are better. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you those, and then we'll move on to the next question. But he says, Walter Kaiser's History of Israel, as well as Eugene Merrill's Kingdom of Priests, would be two books that he would consider, Dr. Dr. Ben Shaw would consider, as better than Edersheim's Old Testament history. So that, to follow up on that question that came in from Twitter, and um, so there you go. Um, But don't junk Edersheim either. Yeah, I was about to ask you. Now, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I think those were, uh, you know, are very good suggestions. But uh, there's still much good in Edersheim as well. Yep. I, yeah, and I don't think Dr. Shaw would say that those are, you know, Edersheim should be just, just tabled. But uh, anyway, those are the two that he uh, he gave to me as I asked him this morning um, in his office. So, question five comes in from um, William. He writes in from uh, Texas, the great state of Texas. I got to say it that way, right? And he writes, my wife and I would like to know how to best keep the Lord's Day when unbelieving family from out of town are staying in our home. Is it a better witness to treat the day as usual or to possibly refrain from evening service to spend time with the unbelievers? Would spending time with them doing non-Sabbath day activities be considered an act of mercy or a violation of the Sabbath? Thank you, William. And shout out to all of you in San Antonio. I hope you have met our graduate, Ross Fearing. He and his wife, Emily, are living there now working with uh, military men mm-hmm. in, um, involved in PCA churches. And then a good friend of mine, John Brasher, is over there as well. So uh, a good question. Let me be a bit autobiographical. As my first year in seminary, I was coming to the realization of the Lord's Day under the teaching of Dr. Smith in 1968. I faced this issue. I had come to uh, most of the convictions that I hold to now with respect to no 
uh, recreational eating out, uh, no television, stuff like that. But on Sunday nights, I was working with young people in a church, and I said, well, I can go out with these guys to uh, – there was a a bowling alley they would go to and, and shoot pool. And I said, well, for the sake of, of ministry and witnessing, I would do that. And I was pretty quickly convicted uh, of that. It's a very important principle with respect to uh, the law of God and biblical ethics, that keeping one commandment properly would never put us in the violation of breaking another commandment. There's not a hierarchy of obedience. So then I can make the analogy, would I go with these boys to a brothel? Or whorehouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, our problem is we don't realize that the, the Sabbath commandment is every bit as serious as the other commandments, even the last six commandments, things that we would not consider doing for the sake of ministry. I've also had to wrestle with this problem uh, practically, uh, both with uh, believing family who were not Sabbatarian and unbelievers who, of course, were not Sabbatarian in our home or in our home on the Lord's Day. I think it's a great witness to them uh, to observe the day as you believe God has called you to do so and to actually have an extended family worship and uh, invite them to go with you to the evening service but explain to them why it is important important. It's, it's not an act of mercy. Now, if they needed your help, that'd be different. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's simply a matter of trying to demonstrate uh, to them. And the same thing, and it's even more difficult when you're in their home. Mm-hmm. And that's even harder. They're going to have the television going, the football games are on, you've got children. And the, the way that we normally handle that was um, we would sit with the TV on and try to have conversation. We also used uh, a nap as an excuse uh, to go to our room and uh, if we didn't t- you know, take a brief nap and then do some reading, get the kids down or whatever. So it is more difficult. Uh, even when they know our position, some will be very belligerent in it. But we try to be humble uh, and keep that day as much as we can according to our conscience. I was uh, speaking with a, a mutual friend, Dr. Piper. And um, where they faced this exact issue, and uh, it, it was the practice of the family. They were in their home, practice of the family, uh, Christian family, who after the morning uh, worship service, they would uh, go out to a restaurant. And um, my friend elected to go with them, but refused to order anything, to eat anything there, just to sit with them. And... Um, I know we could be like getting really nitpicky, but is that a good way to re- to deal with that in those situations? In your opinion? Well, again, we're often you know if we're put on the spot and we have to uh, make us uh, you know spot decisions. Uh, I was faced with that uh, a couple of times uh, as guest preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, one turned out really well. A man became a close friend. He was a bachelor, a ruling elder in a church in the Washington, D.C. area when I was up in Philadelphia. And afterwards he said, well, I'm hosting you today and I'm going to take you out to eat. And I said, well, you know, so-and-so, I really appreciate that. That's kind of you, but 
I have convictions about eating out on Sunday, so if it's okay with you, I'll just I'll just drive back to to Philadelphia. Now that was a three hour drive, but that's okay. I fast, and that's not not a difficulty. We said, oh no, we'll go to the house. Now if you don't mind having uh, tomato soup and uh, a grilled cheese sandwich, so that'd be great. <laughs> we had a wonderful afternoon. I don't know if he changed his practice after that, but we did remain good friends. Yep. So now another time I was in Peru, not knowing the language, and end up. I didn't know that we were going to a restaurant, and we ended up in a restaurant. also happened to me one time in Belgrade. And in Belgrade, I think I didn't eat. In Peru, I did eat. Um, you just find yourself, particularly when there's a language problem there as well. But um, if, you know, if they'd asked me and not just put me in the back of a car, uh, I would have I declined. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask about the you know the pastoral supply thing, but you got to that before I could because even some here students will fa- may well, could potentially we need to face do this that. more regularly, uh, and that is we should send form letters to any church that wants to use one of our students. That just some basic things. We expect you to pay. You know, we have no minimum, but we expect you to pay mileage at the current rate, and please do not uh, take our students out to restaurant. Yeah on Sunday. Yeah. It's a really great question and it's extremely practical. I think all of us who endeavor to follow the Lord's day are, at one time or another, especially if you if you have unbelieving family members, you're going to run into this. It's it's inevitable and so establish that conviction up front um and and use it as a good teaching opportunity to to witness to them about your convictions and your desire to follow the Lord's uh will and command as it pertains to the Lord's day. So yeah, very good question, and um, thank you for writing in, William, from the great state of Texas. Moving on, Jeff writes in from Abbeville, South Carolina, and he has a question regarding evening worship or and or evening gathering. And I am very interested in the answer to this question. <laughs> you answered a question last episode on the importance of evening worship, so thank you. I don't believe that gets to the heart of my question, so would you please address the following? Is it evening worship that we must, and that's in quotes, must, and I think he's trying to emphasize it, must have, or could God's people gather for fellowship in a time of teaching? This would keep the morning and evening pattern. If we have prayer meeting on Wednesday, worship the Lord's Day morning, it would seem that Sunday evening is a good opportunity to address particular issues or topics in such a way that would not be addressed from the pulpit. I thank the Lord for Dr. Piper and Greenville Seminary, and you've done a good work in my life. Good, Jeff. Thank you for uh, the question. Um, as I said before when I answered the question, I believe that it's a strong inference in Scripture that we should have evening worship. Now, it's, I, I can't raise that to the level of, of dogmatism, but I believe the combination of Psalm 92, which is a psalm for the Sabbath, and the Jewish church actually used it that way as well. And it says then, they used it that way, and they said, mm. uh, um, declare God's loving kindness in the morning his faithfulness at night. Uh, there's a pattern there of time that was mentioned. Uh, there's also the matter that on the Sabbath, morning and evening uh, sacrifices were doubled to show the uh, importance of the day. And then there's the, merely the, the spiritually practical issue and that is, we believe that uh, corporate worship is the primary means of grace. So if it's the primary means of grace, uh, and 
there's a pattern of two, it's a historical pattern as well, why would we want to lessen that pattern? And so I encourage people to continue with evening worship. I think that uh, Sunday school mm. is the mm-hmm. best time to deal with the other. Our problem is we have such a poor view of adult education in the church that adult Sunday school is pretty much wasted and boring time. I've got a, a curriculum I worked up when I pastored in Houston, and it was like Bible school. Mm. We had a four-year curriculum. Uh, we had basic courses that people should take before they took another course. That's how we did our officer training. So a man that had gone through four years of that would have been through uh, Bible survey courses, systematic theology, church history, how to study the Bible, current issues, all kinds of things can be done uh, just with uh, planning. And so it's not an either-or situation. Address those topics uh, in Sunday school uh, and then have a real prayer meeting with not a half of the time or three-quarters of the time spent in Bible study. Read, read a psalm or something and pray and have two worship services. That's what I uh, practice and what I think is the healthiest way for a church. Now, providentially, some churches can be hindered. They're, they're in rental facilities or whatever. They can only be there once on a Sunday. And then I would say meet in homes and do the our small groups or whatever, but that's only because they don't have access to a place for corporate worship. No, I, I find, just to dovetail on what Dr. Pipe has said, and, and uh, I find that having the two services on the Lord's Day, um, and, I, and, I, and I totally agree with what Dr. Pipe has just said, but I think it helps also encourage people with the realization that this whole day is the Lord's Day, and it should be, uh, and it should be uh, honored as such, and so this helps encourage that because you have it on both ends, and so it's not yeah, as you. I think Jeff's question takes that into account. Yeah, it does. So um, he still wants to have something on both ends, but just doesn't need to be worship. And right. I, I would think that uh, yep. it should be if it's all possible. It's just a follow-up question, and and because we are moving very rapidly, so there's some leeway here. Um, since I'm the host and I get to do this, <laughs> uh, how do you view Dr. Piper uh, the, the Sunday school as uh, as a called meeting of the church? Is is can the session of of a congregation uh, require? And I, I use that word carefully, but can they can they mandate the congregation to be in Sunday school? The session. Well, you can't discipline somebody for not doing Sunday school, okay. if that's what you're asking. No. Nope. But we understand that when you take a membership vow, that you're taking the vow to support the work and worship of the church to the best of your ability. And so I would think that uh, the, the, the session may have a Sunday school if they've deemed that is the best way to do this matter of discipleship and adult uh, education. There are other ways to do it, but... Uh, they've done this for the sake of the congregation, mm-hmm. but particularly I think it's better on the Sunday because it does the Sunday is be to given over to these purposes. That's right. And so to do it on Sunday, they have every authority to call it, and people should have good reason then yep. so for then, neglecting it. So then if we, we connect that to Jeff's question as it relates to uh, the evening is not a worship service, it's just a gathering, uh, whereas, in other words, it's an evening Sunday school 
uh, if, if, for, if that's a fair phrase, uh, can the session then require them to be there for that? No, not require. But again, you've taken a vow yep. that you would be there. Um, I think, you know, I'd, I wouldn't want to be in a church that didn't have an evening worship service. Uh, if it were a temporary thing, that would be one thing, because mm-hmm. that's kind of things I've alluded to. If it were a philosophical thing, that would be something else. I think if I were in a church that made that decision, I probably would go to the session humbly and say, I appreciate what you're doing. I, in good conscience, prefer to be in worship. I'm going to go down the road on Sunday nights and not take part in your small yep. groups. But again, that would be a matter of conscience. But yep. you should do it humbly with the session, not just do it on your own. Yep. I mean, I, I, I came out of a, a, a PCA congregation that, would, that did this. They, they had a morning worship, and then they would call their evening time an evening gathering, not evening worship. And if I told you the name of the church, I think it would shock you. So, but I won't do it on air. You can ask me after if you remember. Okay, uh, just uh, it, we've we've got we've we've moved quite rapidly, and we're about halfway through our, our allotted time. So let me just take this opportunity to do what I didn't do in the front end, um, just to remind the listeners: um, number one, that we do this faith and practice segment every month, Lord willing, um, where Doctor Piper fields all these questions. I I I, 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 I send them to him as when I get them. Um, he has access to them and reviews them and goes over them. And um, but but the key is you've got to send them to us. And so and if we get more than enough, we'll we'll meet twice a month. Yeah. And I have um, I have opened up and I in fact did that this morning as I was thinking about uh, the process. And so if you go to the confessingourhope.com website, there is actually an article there, or a, 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 a posting that gives you four different ways to get questions to us through either Twitter. Uh, through the form that's on the website, you can use the Confessing Our Hope page on Facebook, and um, or you can just email me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Now, just for simplicity, it, the form is the easiest way for me, but I don't really care how you get them. Send them in. If you send them through Twitter, obviously you're going to be limited by 140 characters, which doesn't break my heart any at all. So, so you can use that, but use hashtag GPTSFP to do uh to send it in that way so that's just a little bit of a in- information of what we're trying to make it a little easier for everybody to send questions in different mediums as they have opportunity and of and of course if you want more information about greenville seminary uh, there are some really exciting things going on here and i'm not going to get into the details they're, they're going to come out eventually in the public arena um, we're working on a new catalog hint hint and they're going to be some great uh things happening here um, as far as the educational processes. So look for that information, but look to our website, gpts.edu. That's where the information will be presented um, as soon as it gets made public. So just stay tuned, but there's some good things. So if you're thinking about seminary uh, and you're thinking about the, the pastoral ministry, uh, Greenville Seminary, check the website and, um, and uh, pray about it and seek the wisdom of your elders as it relates to that matter. All right, so enough of the commercial break. We'll move on now to question number seven. Jack writes in from, uh, uh, I don't know where. So anyway, Jack writes in, and his subject is on the issue of of salvation, God's intention to save, the free free offer of the gospel. And he asks, how would you respond to someone who says that an implication of Calvinism is that God doesn't really want all men to come to a knowledge of the truth? In other words, if God has two wills on the subject, 
to use Piper's phrase, that's what he wrote, I don't know that he said that, but to use Piper's phrase, then the Lord doesn't really mean it, quote-unquote, when he says in various passages he wants all men to repent. All right, Jack. Uh, There are two basic uh, approaches exegetically to the question. The two passages... uh, I think would be in Ezekiel 18 and then in uh, uh, Peter, uh, where Peter then makes the same uh, reference that um, God is not, does not, one that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, and one that God is not willing that any would perish. Um, one approach, and I think this would be what uh, John Murray and Dr. Smith would have taken, and that is that uh, there is. God's revealed will, and there's God's decretive will. God's decretive will, he's chosen those who would be saved, but his revealed will is uh, for all to come to Christ, and thus he's willing to save any who will come to Christ. Now, they go about a step further and say the revealed will uh, is that God uh, does not delight in the destruction of the wicked and is willing that all come to Christ. The other position, which is my position, is the language, the first place is covenantal. So in Ezekiel, when it's used, God's talking about his covenant people. Mm. And so if we have in the church a, a, a youngster who has turned away from the faith, we can plead with him with this way. God has made promises to you specifically. And, you know, God longs for your repentance, is willing, not willing that you should perish. Um, but to those outside the church, I think what I want to say is is that what God is saying here is is that he is willing to receive any who will come to him. He turns none away. And God does delight in the salvation of men. And as the Puritan said, that uh, grace was God's, um, or justice, judgment was God's strange act. That grace, the exercise of grace, was God's regular act. So... I am much more comfortable with the position that uh, no God is not willing that all would uh, uh, that none should perish. Uh, that God has decreed that uh, some will perish. Let me follow up with that because uh, a question I get uh, I, I have actually heard uh, in discussion uh, recently actually um, from those who oppose the doctrines of grace, Calvinism, the five points. Call it what you wish. Um, but the the question really, Dr. Piper, is, is it a real offer if, in fact, the person in God's eternal decree was never elect in the first place? Well, it's a, a real offer because um, the offer, the person is making their own free choice. And so the offer is genuine that if any will repent, uh, they will come. Now, we know that you cannot repent if God doesn't give you the grace, but it does not affect the offer. Uh, the offer is genuine if you will repent. And the response of the sinner is, I don't want to repent. Exactly. And nobody would be in hell can blame God, you didn't choose me. They'll be there because they freely chose to be there. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and I think this is a subject that, again, is, way, I got is often debated. The Ezekiel passage in chapter 18 I'll put it in its context. If the wicked man turns from all his sins, I was talking to the covenant people, which he's committed, and observes all my statutes and practices justice, righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. 
All his transgressions which he's committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he's practiced. He will live. Now, that doesn't mean his works saved him, but the works were evidence of his repentance. And then, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. So he says, do I have pleasure in the wicked? No, I want him to repent. Now, that's true. Uh, God does want him to repent, but notice as well, it is in the uh, context of the covenant community uh, that God uh, makes that, uh, that declaration. What was that text again? Ezekiel 18.23. And Peter's uh, language is a bit different. We're committing the, the broadcast sin of dead air. So we're here, I promise. <laughs> Bill has never a problem with you in dead air. Babylon and on and on. So they don't need to worry about that. So uh, in Second Peter 3, 8 and 9, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think that's the elect, you see. Right. He's in the context of why uh, Christ is tarrying. It's because God is wanting all those whom he's chosen to come to repentance. So one's covenantal, one has to do with election. Yep. Good question, Jack. Thanks for writing in and for listening to the program. Arthur writes in, longtime listener, um, and has submitted a number of questions, and all, all of them very good. And um, I was wondering if we were going to get this question in light of recent uh, issues that are— You fished for it. What do you mean wondering? Well, I did a little bit. I was trying to provoke <laughs> thought from people as I was uh, soliciting questions for the program, and I was just thinking about things that I might ask um, if I were— uh, sitting out there, but uh, but Arthur writes in from Pennsylvania, and it's on the subject of Christian conscience and work, and he says or asks, um, setting politics aside in light of the Kim Davis controversy. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you know the controversy. Okay, Kentucky uh, county clerk who would not give out marriage licenses to anybody, not just homosexuals, but anybody. Um, but setting politics no, aside, no, yeah, no. that's true. No, she wouldn't give Not them up to anybody. She no. did that when she protect herself. No, she wouldn't give them up to anybody. This way, she couldn't be cons- she couldn't be accused of discrimination. Anyway, we can argue about that later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but setting politics aside, in light of the Kim Davis controversy, what does the Bible teach us as teach us how, as to how we should respond in such situations where we are told to do our jobs, even if it conflicts with the conscience? Uh, informed by biblical teaching. For example, if I were told by a court that I must perform a wedding for two men or two women or face a fine or jail time, or if I were in charge of issuing permits to build an abortion clinic and someone sued sued to force me to do it. Okay. Uh, Arthur, this is a, a very complex question. I'm sure that my answer will please uh, no one. Uh, <laughs> but that's okay. We can all keep praying and thinking about this. I have waffled on the Kim Davis uh, issue. Uh, Normally, I come down on the side that as a Christian, uh, she did the right thing. Now, she could have done it better. Uh, And part of the problem there is 
uh, is that you know this can accuse people of double standard. Mm -hmm. uh, her sexual ethics are not as precise in other areas. Now she could have been converted after all of this. That's the one fact that is not known. Uh, but you know a lot of people have discredited what she's done by the fact that she's what on her third marriage and and all of these things. And so. Uh, so when we make public stands, we need to be consistent with the scriptures and the, and the law of God. Now, with that aside, she was elected by the people of Kentucky. They had a constitution uh, that clearly stated marriage between one man and one woman, and she took a vow to uphold that law. So we have conflicting laws. Um, the Supreme Court ruling is even more questionable because they don't have the authority to uh, legislate, which they've done now and said all states must have a law that allows for same-sex marriage. Uh, that is uh, what they did was unconstitutional. Now, it would have been better if governors and legislators in states had immediately either put down decrees or passed legislation saying uh, in this state we will only have heterosexual marriage and then let the Supreme Court wrestle with that issue. Uh, I guess most of them have been too cowardly. Uh, it's, it's been shameful. There's a very important principle that Calvin enunciates in the very last chapter of the Institutes, and that is that the civil magistrate may, the lower magistrate may uh, lead um, proper um, rebellion against uh, higher magistrates. And in a case like this, I wish it had happened. Now we go down a lower level to the county government, and she's made this uh, decision. Uh, I would think that she had one of two ways she could go. She, she was right. She couldn't sign the marriage certificate. And her signature went on all of them, whether or not she issued the license herself or not. That's right. So she either needed to quit, and then we're talking about her livelihood, or she needed to say, um, this is unconstitutional, I'm not going to do it. Now, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., advocated civil disobedience, a peaceful civil disobedience, suffer the consequences, go to jail for it to make a point. Uh, people seem to be unwilling to grant that kind of slack on an issue that is every bit as serious as the racial discrimination that was going on uh, in his day. So I think that to take her stand and go to jail for that is not inappropriate. Uh, as ministers, we easily could find ourselves in this situation. In fact, even preaching against it. And each minister is going to need to, before God, seek the grace. If I'm told I may not preach against homosexuality, um, not that I'm going to go out of my way to do it, but I'm preaching through Scripture, and this comes up. Um, am I going to deal faithfully with, with the Word of God? Now, the building permit's a bit different because um, it doesn't matter what a building is used for. If you're in the building permit business, it's your responsibility to be sure a building is constructed safely so it's not, uh, it's not dangerous. And so I don't know that it's the same thing for somebody issuing permits for uh, construction because that's a, they're not they don't get involved in the use of the building they get involved in the safety of of the building. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that you're building the building and, and there's going to be sin committed in that building in one way, shape, or form. I mean, so you don't build any buildings because 
some immoral acts might take place, whether it's abortion or some other activity. Um, yeah, I think those are two separate issues. The thing that intrigues me about the whole Kim Davis issue, Dr. Piper, is that there, as you indicated, it's an issue that has caused some some tension in in the reality of, okay, in good conscience she can't do this, so maybe she should just quit her job. Of course, then that strikes at the livelihood of what she's going to do and how she's going to pay her bills. But at the end of the day, maybe she should have quit. I don't know. I'm to- I'm with you. I'm torn on exactly how that should have been handled. Um, I don't know. I-, I I wish I had an answer. I commend her willingness to stand firm, go to jail. She did. Um, but as most issues, these become politicized, I think, pretty heavily. Um, but it, it is a tough issue um, regardless. But I think, as you said, ministers, th- this can become very critical at that point as they preach um, through these issues. Anything further on that one? I think we're in enough trouble. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I can see Facebook now. Anyway, uh How's that for a definitive answer? Well, let me see. I'm, I'm writing a, a piece. I hope I get, get it done this week. Um, a, a modest proposal uh, for heterosexual marriage hmm. posted on uh, with Cal Beisner, uh, Cornwall Alliance website, and then on my, my yep, website. Yep, and, 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 and that's a good, good segue. Dr. Piper does have his own website, josephpiper.com. Uh, there's videos there, articles uh, that he's done for all, many, many years, and I, I've gathered them all up, and I've combined them and put them on his website, so... Sure, I've missed a lot, but uh, there's much there to peruse. I did want to uh, follow up real quick. There are states, though, that have had on the books forever that mm-hmm. marriage is between a, a w- one woman and one man, and 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 as you indicated, SCOTUS then turns around and 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 basically makes law, which is not their job. That that's the job of the Congress, and that's really the argument. I think that the Kim Davis issue is is in, in well, other issues. It does issues. the Tenth Amendment. I mean, this is it's clearly a state's issue. You know, and, you know so if some if as if, was abortion. So yeah, and if, so if, if if ten states want to say fine, we'll we'll honor homosexual marriage, then fine. Then then if you want to be homosexually married, go to those states and be homosexually married, quote unquote married. I use that term very loosely. Um, but it is clearly a state's issue, and, and the Supreme Court doesn't legislate. But, and then that's really where I think the center of the debate ultimately ends in the discussion. All right, moving on from that controversy, we're going to uh, take the question from Mark from, uh, from New Mexico, I believe. Um, he writes, again, it's a political question, involvement in political activities. He says, in recent days in the presidential election, political circus, his word, the issue has come up about statements made concerning a public figure in public. At a rally, one candidate did not support nor immediately shoot down a statement made by an attendee concerning President Obama's religion. Okay, I know which one this is. His response drew an immediate rebuke from another candidate, along with the suggestion that he was responsible to defend the president or at least to publicly defend his official persona. While we know from the moral law that we must not bear false witness against anyone, what is lawful, proper, or at least best when what is true about a person is unclear? For example, there are official statements and there is evidence from which reasonable people can connect the dots in another way, but not definitively, especially when someone is a public figure and public discussions like this ensue. What should we as Christians do or say, not do, not say? Now, do you want to give the background to this? Or do you know what he's referring yeah, to? Yeah, give me a confession of faith. I, I can get ago. that. 
And it, it want, if you know the background, why don't you tell the I listeners? I don't know the background. Well, the background is, I think the background is when Donald Trump was asked specifically in, a, in, a, in an open forum town hall meeting about uh, Obama being a Muslim. Okay. And, and, and Trump did not definitively answer the question. In fact, he sidestepped it. So I'm going to get a confession, and I don't know what All you're right. going to do while I do that. Good. Well, the um, Mark, I think you, you phrased the question quite wisely. And the key here has to do with the statement uh, that uh, the evidence is not clear. And in the larger catechism's uh, commentary on the uh, Ninth Commandment, it says that we are responsible uh, when it's all possible uh, to protect the name of our neighbor or his uh, reputation. So uh, I'm trying to find this here. So in the Ninth Commandment, uh, the duties that are required defending it when need requireth it. Um, so we defend the good name of our neighbor uh, when need uh, requires it. And so if there's not sufficient evidence uh, to the fact of what is being said, uh, I think that we are responsible to say, well, we don't know in terms of a man's uh, religious convictions and uh, commitments. What we do know is that he does he has policies that are anti-Christian. And I think that's the, the way to do it. And so uh, his policies are anti-Christian. By their fruits, you will know them. And so we would say that uh, uh, we have a reason to think the man is a Christian, uh, but we don't know that he is uh, a Muslim. But his policies show that he um, is very favorable uh, not just to Islam, but even to uh, a more uh, radical Islam. Uh, but I think that we, you know, we owe the man the benefit of the doubt when it comes to saying, well, he's, he's a Muslim. Now, this is the kind of stuff that um, is not useful. Now, another issue, though, that's connected, so I'll throw this in, simply save the question next month, is this week Dr. Carson has said that he didn't think a Muslim could be the president of the United States. Yeah, said that yesterday. And I think that uh, he is right. And what he's done is he's gone straight to the Quran. Um, a consistent Muslim believes in Sharia law. The Quran says if you don't, you're apostate. And so... <laughs> He uh, is simply saying you cannot have two masters. Now, the reality is, is that just as we've got nominal Christians, we've got nominal Muslims. We've got ethnic Jews and ethnic Muslims. Mm -hmm. And so um, it could be that such a person might want to run for president, but at which point they would have to be asked point blank what their commitment is to the Quran. They said they believe in the Quran then I think that disqualifies them from political office. So, again, everybody's enjoying jumping on uh, Dr. Carson 
and accusing him of bigotry when, in fact, as I heard Bill Bennett say this morning, he's probably the least bigoted man running uh, for public office. He's a gentle and humble man, himself the object of racial prejudice many times uh, as a young man, and yet never even lashed back at those people. So um, he probably could have answered the question more wisely, and the longer he lives in the political circus, he will learn to do that. But the essence of what he's saying is if you're, if you're a committed Muslim, you cannot be a public official in the United States of America. Yep. Well, thank you for the question. It's obvi- it, 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 As has already been said, it is loaded with a lot of other tangential items. Um, I dovetail with what Dr. Piper said about Ben Carson. I watched the debate that happened the other night. Frankly, the man's a gentleman. Um, I, humble. Um, I, we need more of that kind of behavior in the White House. Enough said on that. Um, we have about three and a half minutes left, so I'm going to make an executive decision and jump to question 11 on your sheet, because I think that can be answered relatively quickly, if you agree. It's at the last page. We wasted time, didn't we? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the question is on the, the subject of family worship, and uh, the, it, it's, an, it's written in by Anonymous, and he asks, or she asks, uh, Dr. Piper, what was your typical routine for conducting family worship in your own home? What advice would you offer to husbands and wives that no longer have children in the home as it relates to this practice, and how important to the life of the church is this discipline? Thank you, Anonymous. Double Anonymous. Uh, very important question. Uh, for us, it went through three phases of life. Young children, it's, it's simple. Uh, we would do it at the meal. Uh, we would sing. We would, uh, we've used Bible storybooks. We've used uh, going through the Bible. Uh, we pray together. We work on catechism. Uh, when the children got in those teenage years where they were uh, at different schedules and stuff, and we've always had trouble with mornings simply because of different morning schedules mm-hmm. as well. So we tried to do it in the evening. Uh, and so it was not as consistent, but it was still an evening practice. Now, when the children have been gone, uh, my wife and I have been up and down in terms of consistency. Uh, we were doing it in the evening, but again, uh, it was not working well. We were mostly reading a, uh, a book of short Puritan devotionals and praying. And to her credit, uh, a couple of weeks ago she said, we really need to move this to the morning and get back into singing, reading, and praying. And so we're doing that again. I'm really enjoying it. She is as well. So uh, we are uh, uh, singing a psalm right now. Um, reading, uh, I read a section of one of the chapters I'm reading in McShane and, and then praying. Uh, and so I think that uh, what we have to do is to be flexible and shift. Again, it makes it a bit more difficult morning schedule. I'm up at 5 and doing my devotions uh, and try to be out of the house about a quarter till. So I'm getting out a little later. Um, she's getting up a little earlier. So there's compromise on both parts. There's going to be some mornings where she's just going to be tired and sleep in. Uh, that happened yesterday. And uh, yesterday we were able. I came home uh, to study, and we did it in the middle of the day. But um, it's good to have an established time, established procedure. And as to its importance, it is very important uh, in the life of the church and actually, in the Scottish Church, and you'll f- we've got the seminaries got a um, um, 
published annotation of the Directory of Family Worship that came out of the uh, Westminster Assembly. And in the Scottish Church, it was a matter of church discipline. Yep, it sure if was. If a man was not leading his family, and family worship. Yep, I was just teaching on this, in fact, up in at Landis Presbyterian Church in Marion, North Carolina, and made that same comment, um, that it was extremely important, and it affected the life of the church so dramatically that they would actually discipline a father who would not, who was militantly opposed to doing it. Uh, it wasn't that he struggled doing it, but that he wouldn't do it. And... Um, yeah, it's really important subject. Just some resources. We're uh, out of time as far as the live broadcast is concerned, but just some resources on family worship. Joel Beakey at Reformation Heritage Books, president of Puritan Theological Seminary, has written a really nice booklet on the subject of family worship. It covers everything from implementing it, its theological basis for it, and some great practical suggestions for fathers to just put into practice with it. I have found that that my biggest struggle when I did family worship with my kids in the house was that I, it was too long, too taxing, and it became an hour-long sermon instead of brevity and instruction and, and singing a, a, a hymn or two and on our way. But um, anyway, very good question and one that I fear, uh, I fear is not done enough in the homes, and um, perhaps that's why we see some of the things happening in the churches today as well, one of many other issues. We didn't get to all the questions, which is fine. Um, I don't anticipate ever getting through all of them. Sometimes we can and sometimes we can't, um, but that's fine. They get moved into the next Faith and Practice segment, which would be number 17. You believe we've done 16. That's 16 months of Faith and Practice, and the, the feedback has been just outstanding, very encouraging uh, things. We could tell stories. Dr. Piper could tell stories of people who have contacted him for on various levels um, regarding this particular program that we've done on the podcast. So we're very thankful to the Lord for him using this uh, medium to bless uh, the listeners and those who then pass that information on as it helps them, edifies them, encourages them in their walk with Christ. But keep sending the questions in. Uh, one thing I failed to mention is that if you do send us a question, uh, and we use it, and, and, and we use every question. I mean, let's, unless it's completely off the wall, we use the question. Um, we will send you a $10 off discount coupon to the Mark ban- gets two today. No, just one. I, I, I limited that. <laughs> In other words, I don't want I, – I, I stopped listeners from stacking so they okay. could get like $50 with the discounts. <laughs> so anyway, but you get $10 off at the Banner of Truth, which puts out uh, reputable, solid material that you can use to buy whatever you want instead of us sending books that we have here and kind of limiting it. So this kind of opens it up for you to get what you want to get um, and, and get $10 off whatever – you choose to purchase. So send your questions in. You can go to the website. It's confessingourhope.com. Very simple. I just redesigned the site, made it even easier to navigate and, and, and work within. So that's where you'll find all this information, how to send the question in, what you're going to get, all that, and uh, as well as past broadcasts and other material, as well as the GPTS mobile app, which we have been working diligently on putting other material on, including uh, chapel sermons in video uh, with Dr. Piper. So and he's preaching through Psalm 119 right now, and they're, they're outstanding, and, and they're in video, so you can watch it as well as listen. But uh, take advantage of those resources. Confessingourhope.com is the website where you can get all of that information. So until next time, we do thank you for all the questions. They've been outstanding, but we do thank you for listening, supporting this podcast, uh, a podcast uh, put out by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So until next time, 
Thank you and God bless.